We'll begin reading in verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, them that sin rebuke before all, that others may fear also, or that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. It's always a great interest and importance to us when we see the Apostle Paul give instruction about the field or the vocation, if you will, of preaching. After all, you have one of the greatest preachers that has ever lived teaching one of his sons in the ministry, an apprentice, someone that labored under him and studied under him about the Word of God and about how he is to engage in this task of preaching. It's for us that are preachers always something that we need to take heed to and take advantage of the instruction, learn from it, and know that this is something that Paul felt very strongly about. I'm very thankful for the pastoral epistles that we've been studying through together, and I think that even though this is a letter from an apostle to an elder, from one preacher to another preacher, you find things that are very important and very relevant to the church. We've learned many relevant things in this study as we've read this letter from Paul to another minister, this minister Timotheus or Timothy. Our passages today largely deal with the theme of our responsibilities towards the gospel ministry, both in terms of our respect for them and the honor of that position, but also our support for them. Now, you might think that this is a message that benefits the person who's giving it to you, and this is something that I don't talk about unless we're going through the Word of God and we come across it in the natural course of our study. As you know, we've been in the book of First Timothy for now 19 messages, and so this is one of the benefits of expository preaching, which is to say you take a book and you go through it verse by verse, is that you come across everything that God would intend for you to know to the best of our ability to extract it and unpackage it in front of you in the order that he gave it to you without any sort of agenda, without any sort of self-serving motive. We learn what God said to his church as he said it to his church through his scriptures. And if that be by way of rebuking us, then we hear the rebuke that God gives us. If that be a practical instruction, something about church discipline, which we'll actually get to today, then so be it. If it be a sweet message of salvation by God's sovereign grace, then praise God for that portion of His Word. We thank God for all of His Word. And as we observe in that scripture reading this morning, a man who studies God's Word and meditates on it day and night from Psalm 1 is like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water. That's one of my favorite psalms, and it's one that if I don't have anything in heart or mind to read, I'll read that simply for the sake of reminding myself and seeing that beautiful picture unfold that if I study the Word of God, and if I put the Word of God into practice in my day-to-day -day life, that I will flourish in this world. Even in sufferings and persecutions, I'll flourish in a spiritual sense 
because I'm feasting on, I'm absorbing nutrients from the Word of God. This is one of these passages today that is important for us because it teaches us the blessing of caring for those and respecting for those, providing for those that labor among us. Now, as we begin to introduce these thoughts for you today from 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'll tell you that this is true for a church to support their minister, obviously, but it's something that I am not immune from. And so if a minister blesses me, my responsibility to him is to provide for him and to bless him. This is something that I felt very strongly about when I was a church member back at home when I was not the pastor, and I exhorted the church very strongly to do better than we did for our pastor because we didn't do what we could have done for our pastor. And repeatedly we, by way of example, but also admonition, encouraged them to try to do better for their pastor, and they did. They made necessary needful improvements as they cared for their next pastor. Verse 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in the word and doctrine. Because of chapter 5 and verse 1, we'll spend just a moment clarifying that when Paul uses the word elder here, he doesn't have reference to merely an older person in the church. This word elder in the original language, much like it does in Bible dictionaries, means either an older person in general or a person of authority and oversight in the church. In chapter 5 and verse 1, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren. Obviously, in 1 Timothy 5, 1, the word elder means an older man, just like the word younger means a younger man. And if you look at 1 Timothy 5, 2, the elder women... As mothers, that doesn't mean that there were women who were ordained to the office of elder. It means that there were older women in the church. And we find both of these definitions in dictionaries. But when we come to verse 17, the usage of the word elder doesn't have reference to merely an older person, but one who is ordained to, and we'll speak just in just a moment to this concept of ordaining them to the office of elder, we're learning of one who is ordained to the gospel ministry, someone who is ordained as an elder. Now, this is a little bit unusual because we talk often about the law of first usage. And when we talk about that, what we mean is if you see in a chapter the word adoption early in the chapter, as you come to the end of the chapter or the next chapter and you find the word adoption again, usually it has reference to the same sort of thing that you were reading about when the word was first used. And the rule is that unless a writer redefines his word or clarifies that he means it in a different sense, it should carry the same definition as it did when it was first used, the law of first usage, as it were. This is one of those rare exceptions to that, and he does define it in what he says, but it's unusual for him to use a word with one definition here in verse 1 and then come to verse 17 and use the complete different definition of that word. In verse 1 of 1 Timothy 5, elder means an older man. In verse 2, it means an older woman. It simply means older. And then in verse 17 of chapter 5, when he says elders, he has reference to those that are ordained to the gospel ministry. How do you know that? Because he clarifies the elders that rule well, especially they which labor in the word and doctrine. So who he has reference to there are ordained ministers 
of the gospel, people who preach the gospel of Christ. Just to give you a little bit of a usage of this word in Scripture, the book of Acts chapter 20, this is a very beloved passage to me. I've shared this with you probably multiple times. There are only two marks in my Bible that I have made intentionally. Now, occasionally you have that rare occurrence when you lay your pen down on your word and it leaves a little mark, but I don't write in my Bible and I don't make marks or highlights in my Bible. If you do, that's great. I'm not saying that that's wrong to do. I don't do that for a number of reasons. I conversed with a brother online this week who also feels the same way. He doesn't like to write in his Bibles and he was getting a census of his Facebook friends to see if they wrote in theirs or not. And he said, if you do or don't, give your reasons why. And the reasons that I don't, number one, I think it clutters up my copy of the Bible. Number two, my handwriting is terrible. Number three, I change my opinion from time to time, and I don't want to see something I used to disagree with staring me in the face that I wrote. And so if I change my opinion, I don't want the previous opinion written there staring me in the face. And I just don't feel comfortable writing in the Word of God. There are crayon marks that some of my children have written from time to time as they are one or two and find a piece of paper and a crayon. But I have written two marks in this Bible, and both are in the book of Acts chapter 20. One mark is beside chapter 20 and verse 20. The other mark is beside chapter 20 and verse 27. How to give you the context of it and why I have this marked in my Bible. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is going back to Jerusalem. He hasn't been there in some time. He knows that when he goes back, he is going to suffer. The Holy Spirit had testified that when he goes back to Jerusalem, they are going to assault him. Sufferings abound for him in Jerusalem. And he knows this. He understands this. But he has determined to go to Jerusalem and to keep the feast that was going to be kept in Jerusalem. And when he says this, he shares this with the elders of the church of Ephesus. They fall on him and they weep over him. And he is heartbroken because of their reaction to that. Look at verse 37. They all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. They were absolutely just distraught because they knew, because Paul had revealed it unto them, that he was going to suffer and they would never see him again. Think of one of your favorite preachers. Pick your favorite preacher. Imagine that man coming to you and saying, I'm going to go preach in another city and you'll never see me again you would be distraught. You'd be heartbroken. When Elder Obey, who was from Tanzania and came to the United States and began studying under Elder Sam Bryant at Vestavia and went back to Tanzania and ordained elder and established a church there, he was on a preaching trip in Kenya where he ordained elders some three and a half years later and fell sick with malaria and was too sick to board the plane and died there. When that happened... I wept like I had not cried since I was a little boy. It was heartbreaking to me. It seemed so wrong and so just incorrect that he should be gone. It was a heartbreaking thing. These men wept sore. They fell on Paul's neck and they, they kissed him. 
Paul would tell them to greet one another with a holy kiss. You can imagine the side-to-side kiss that we see in some cultures. But as Paul teaches them, he instructs them. And just notice verse 17, he called the elders of the church of Ephesus. He's in Miletus, by the way, verse 17. He sends to Ephesus, he sends word, and he calls for the elders of that church. They come to him, and these elders, who are the elders? Does he have reference to older men, or does he have reference to preachers? Well, notice, you'll see that very clearly depicted. How he kept back nothing that was profitable unto them, but showed them publicly and from house to house. And then in verse 27, he shunned not to declare all the counsel of God. And so therefore, verse 28, take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. These elders are what? They're overseers. The word overseer, by the way, is the same Greek word as the word bishop. We recently talked about bishops. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. And all the qualifications that is required for a person to meet if he is to be ordained as a bishop. Well, no, understand that the word overseer here is the same word as bishop, which is undeniably a gospel minister. And these bishops are the what? The elders of the church of Ephesus. And so in the city of Ephesus, among all the believers in that city, you had elders, and these elders were the bishops. They were the overseers of the church of God. Notice that they have been put into this place by the Holy Ghost to what? To feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood, Paul says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, and remember by the space of three years, I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. Paul says, Look, elders, bishops, God himself has put you in a position of oversight. It is your job to feed the flock of God with the word of God. You are to watch for false prophets, false teachers, wolves that will come in. They stalk the sheep. They prey on the sheep. They draw close and they pounce on the sheep. And in addition to wolves that come in, you have those that arise from even among them speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. In other words, they want to be ringleaders. They want to be teachers. They want to have their own factions and they use the things that they teach and their charisma and their authority, maybe even at times their reputation to put other men under them, other men under them. Now, I love that the apostle Paul says, I will not be brought under the power of any. I am not going to fall in line behind you and do what you say simply because you tell me to do it. I serve Christ and Christ alone. It is Christ alone who has saved me. Therefore, to Christ alone am I answerable. I answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if my conscience is clear, then my conscience is clear. We don't, and we should be very concerned with, we don't approve of and we should be very concerned with when men arise speaking strange ideas to place other men under them as their own little disciples to build little factions and make a, a name and a movement and a following. 
for themselves. If you notice, most every bit of trouble that's ever happened in church history has been because some guy got some strange idea and began to create a movement under him. And the reason, you look back through history, the reason that usually all these factions are named after somebody is because it's some dude that had this idea. For example, the Arians, one of the earliest heresies, the Arians. Why are they called Arians? Seems like a nice term. We'll just pick it out of the dictionary, make it up at random. No, because they followed Arius. Whether you have Arminianism or Pelagianism, all these isms are usually named after a man, and many times the man is the problem. I digress. Paul warns the elders who were the overseers, the bishops, to warn against those that would do that. The point in going to Ephesians, excuse me, to Acts chapter 20 and the church at Ephesus is to say that elders are the ordained ministry. It has two definitions, older people or those who are in a position of religious authority. By the way, it has two definitions in our usage today. You might be an elder statesman or an elder man, and that means that you're someone who is advanced in years. Or you might be an elder who's an ordained person in the church. We have these same definitions today. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, we learn that elders are ordained. Elders are ordained. Paul tells Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete. Crete is a small island. It's narrow and fairly long. I left thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order things that are wanting... That meant that there was a need, they were lacking in ministry. Set in order things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Titus, I left you on the island of Crete to ordain elders in every city you come to. And so Titus would stay at a city and he would preach and he would train up men and he would ordain them and then he would move on to another city and he would go from place to place to place doing this. While God calls men to preach, we should never overlook or discard our relationship in that, our responsibility in that. Gospel preachers train the next generation of gospel preachers. That's why there are fathers and sons like Paul and Timothy. They train them in the ministry. Younger men learn from older men in the ministry. This mentor-apprentice relationship is one of the oldest forms of training in the world, and it's still incorporated today. It's still a way that men learn today. Tim, uh, Titus, I've left you there to ordain elders in every city. Elders are what? They're ordained. If a man says, well, I feel called to preach, I'm an elder. Well, have you been ordained? And I don't mean by mailing in something and, you know, well, I, I, I signed up on the Internet and I was ordained four or five years ago. Sometimes people do that. They want to officiate a wedding. They right into some ministry website and get their ordination certificate, and that's their ordination. That is not how it works in the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That credential is, well, it's not bona fide, to quote one of my favorite movies. You know, you've got a bona fide attorney. He's not bona fide. All right? That doesn't make you a real preacher. You're not really an elder if you just write in and get a mail-order ordination certificate. My printer works just as good as anybody else's, if that's all it takes. I mean, you just print it out back there. But to be ordained, you have to study, you have to demonstrate that you have, to give, you have a gift to preach, and you are vetted, and eventually you are 
questioned and ordained. You've seen an ordination here as we ordain deacons. And that one was, well, it was not as severe as the elder ordinations that I participate in. Now, suffice it to say that I try to ask, if I'm the one questioning the elder, I try to ask enough questions that no one else in the presbytery will have any more questions that they could even think of to ask. So the times that I have questioned the candidate for ordination, I ask any and every conceivable question. I do that because I've seen ordinations where I don't know if the presbytery gets bored, but they begin to just think of any questions and, and even say that as they're thinking, oh, I thought of one. What about, and then it goes on and on and people begin to sigh and complain and that's generally frowned upon in church services. We vet them, we question them, we test their orthodoxy, and we lay hands on them. When we lay hands on them, they are what? They are ordained as an elder. Ordination is important. Ordination is important. And so when we read about in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Elders are ordained ministers who are in the position of oversight in a congregation. Now, to the passage, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Some denominations make a distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. But you notice here that the elder who labors in the word and doctrine also is an elder that what? Is an elder that rules. This means that as far as the first century church was concerned, elders were elders. There was not a distinction between an elder who ruled and an elder who taught. For an elder to be a, quote, ruling elder, he had to be an elder that was a teaching elder. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, you read the language, obey them that have the rule over you, ruling, that would be a, an elder, submit yourselves for they watch for your soul as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. But of these elders, about these elders, we learn in the same chapter that these elders, they teach you the word of God. And so the elder that rules is the elder that teaches the word of God is the elder that must give account. You see in scripture, there's only that one class of elders. It's not that there are elders that can't preach that we put in a position of running the business of the church. And then another type of elder that can preach and we put them in the position of preaching. Elders are elders are elders. This also implies a plurality of elder, which is a good thing. It is a good thing when there are so many disciples and so many preachers and such a plurality of elders among an order of people, among our order of people, that we can have multiple elders at a church. Now, I would insist that when churches in a region are deprived of having pastors, that churches with, and, and listen carefully to me because this may be something that, that benefits us one day to hear, if we have multiple elders and a church within driving distance has no pastor, it should be our privilege and our burden to send elders or an elder to help the churches that don't have a preacher. Proverbs says that where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but there's much increase by the strength of the ox. Now, we'll get to a passage in verse 18 
that talks about an ox. And the question that Paul would ask as he quoted that passage was, does God take care for oxen? And the answer to that is no. So when you read these Proverbs and these Old Testament laws about oxen, sometimes there's a double meaning to that that applies to the work of the ministry. Where no oxen is, where no preacher is, the crib is clean. Without a laborer laboring in the harvest, you do not have a harvest. You do not gather into the crib if there's no laboring minister of the gospel. And so if there's a church 30 miles from here and we have four elders... It's our privilege to send one of the four elders to labor among the church so that that church doesn't begin to starve to death. Even if they have visiting preachers, there is nothing like having a pastor for a church. There is no substitute for having a pastor. Some churches love having visiting preachers, but that visiting preacher is not going to visit you in the hospital. That visiting preacher is not going to be there at 2 a.m. when something terrible happens and you need your preacher right then and there. Which, by the way, if something terrible happens at 2 a.m., give me a call. It may take you three times to get me to answer because I sleep pretty hard. I slept through a four-point-something Richter earthquake in California a few years ago. I didn't wake up. What? Earthquake? I'm asleep. Tornado? We don't have a roof? I don't know. I'm asleep. So you might have to call a few times. But churches need pastors. God has placed pastors in the churches, and so though a plurality of elder is good, it's also very, very unfortunate when churches go without. And so in cases of plurality of elders, it's good if one of the elders goes and labors in churches. I know of churches in our more recent times that could not get a pastor and even began to, began to lose members because... The church was just totally without guidance and leadership. And the sheep, understand God calls us sheep for a reason. Sheep begin to scatter when there is no shepherd. God has sent us to be under shepherds in the church of the Lord Jesus. What does Jesus say about even his own shepherding in his personal ministry? Smite the shepherd and the sheep will what? Scatter. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Churches that don't have pastors find themselves many times, if it's prolonged enough, they find themselves losing members because people just, as sheep, we simply don't respond well to that situation. I think it's a very advisable thing for churches that don't have a pastor to get an interim pastor from the area, even if they don't intend to call him as a permanent pastor. My brother served a church for a year and a half, and he, they would have been delighted to keep him there, but he served with the understanding that this is interim. I don't feel a burden to be your pastor, but I'll help you until you get one, or I feel burdened to labor somewhere else. And he, he served there, and they were very blessed under his, under his tenure. It's fine even to call an interim pastor just so you have that consistent eldership there. That's a very good thing. This implies a plurality of elders, of course. There was a time that we had a plurality of elders here. Many times in our church's history, we had a plurality of elders. And yet we also see in this verse implied those who stand out as the elder that labors in the word and doctrine. And so you might have a plurality of elders, but then I believe very strongly that a church needs one pastor. And because of what I believe to be the nature of the pastorate, and the way that I believe, personally, my conviction about the nature of being a pastor, I believe that churches do well with one figurehead who is 
responsible for carrying them through the Word each and every week. Now, there are other brothers that disagree with me on that, and, and I love them very much, and I'm happy with their opinion, but that's, that's my understanding of that. This elder that labors in the Word and the doctrine would be the elder that is the pastor. In other words, the person who is laboring week in and week out and studying the Word and presenting the Word to the congregation. This is a pastoral figure. Now, you notice the way that he labors. Let them be counted worthy of double honor. We'll comment on that in a minute. First, I want to look at the fact that they labor in the Word and the doctrine. He studies the Word, and therefore he teaches the doctrine. If you don't study the Word, you will not be proficient in teaching the doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, we read, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Timothy, read, study, map out the theology, the doctrine, give attendance to the doctrine, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you concerning the doctrine. Understand what all of these terms mean what all of these metaphors of salvation convey, whether it be justification, regeneration, sanctification, glorification, predestination. Learn all of these theological concepts. Give yourself to it. Study on it. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, W-H-O-L-L-Y, that thy profiting may appear to all. In other words, if you study, it is obvious. And I will go and share with you the, you know, conversely, the, the other, if you don't study, it is equally obvious. If you study, it is obvious. If you do not study, it is obvious. We don't need sheep to starve to death because the man didn't go out and gather in the grain to distribute among the sheep. And that's exactly what happens when a preacher doesn't study. Men have to study to be able to preach the Word. God doesn't funnel in sermons. God doesn't funnel sermons into your head. You know, my preaching would be a lot better if God would funnel sermons into my head. Y'all can amen that. My preaching would be a lot better if I stood up here and a beam just shot down from glory and it was like an upload from heaven itself. Every word would be right. Every analogy would be spot on. It would never be boring. I could go three or four hours and you wouldn't care. Amen. But you'd care if I went three or four hours now. Amen. Amen. <laughs> we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. When you study, it's obvious. Conversely, when you do not study, it is obvious Studying is a big part of this. Our primary task in life is to study so we can teach the Word. We study the Word so we can teach the Word. This is such an important thing that in Acts chapter 6, we've recently looked at this a couple of times. This is why the apostles instructed the church to appoint deacons. Now, preachers are called, deacons are appointed. And that's an important distinction. There are good, great men full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom who are excellent deacons that will tell you, I am not called to preach, but I can handle anything else that you'd have me to do, and I'm glad to serve any other way that you would have me serve. 
Preachers are called, deacons are appointed. The apostles say, go appoint men over this business, so what? So that we can devote our time to the study of the Word. It's not reason that we leave the Word of God in prayer. We should study, we should pray, we should not neglect these disciplines. And when we do that, our profiting appears to all. And great is the increase by the strength of the ox, as it is in the book of Proverbs. In other words, the church is going to benefit from good, faithful pastoring. Now, I don't say that saying, look at me, I've got this figured out. Okay, that's not like, oh, I've got this covered. No, I struggle every day with this. But just in general, when you look at a congregation and they have faithful pastoral ministry and good sound preaching, the church is going to benefit from that. It's going to benefit from that in that your lives are changed, your hearts are comforted, you're edified, you're built up in Christ, you are more and more spiritual. At the same time, those that would cause trouble in the church are going to be driven away. Never be mad at a shepherd when he runs away a wolf. You know, we, we like to pet the dog. Don't pet the wolf. Don't pet the wolf. But it's so pretty. It bites people, Okay. When the preacher runs away the wolf, don't get mad at the preacher. He's doing his job. That's the job of the shepherd, to drive away the wolves. When a church has faithful pastoral leadership, it's obvious in the way the church is benefited. It's obvious when the church is benefited. That's a biblical principle. Especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, as we think on the lines of, along the lines of studying, on one hand, we study. We don't simply study to become human encyclopedias of Bible knowledge. I was in a conversation with a friend the other day who is a part of a, a different religion, and we conversed about the idea of evil and sin. And the Bible sets forth the idea that all men are conceived in sin, shapen in iniquity, and so by nature we are evil. Without Christ we're evil. And so any goodness that any man ever has comes where? It comes from Christ to the Holy Spirit. We are all turned aside. We're all gone astray. There's none good, no not one, according to Romans chapter 3. And He said, remind me never to get into a Bible trivia contest with you. And I said, well, this isn't for the sake of Bible trivia. It's not just that I want to be a human encyclopedia of Bible knowledge. I want to know the Word so I can teach you the Word so your life has changed. So you could be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season and his leaf withers not. I learned this to turn around and give it to you. Think about the elder. This is an analogy that I got from a, a good brother, Elder Steve Milner. We go as the servants at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when Jesus turned water to wine. Do you remember that story? Jesus says, draw water. And after he draws the water, at some point after the water is drawn and it's served, the water becomes wine because of the miraculous power of Jesus. We servants draw the water. We draw the water. If I don't draw the water, it's going to be an empty cup and you're not going to get anything to turn to wine. But after I've drawn the water... And I'm carrying it to give it to you. Christ does miraculously convert it to wine. And then your your spirits are lifted up. That's much like how gospel preaching is. I draw the water. I serve it to you. 
And through the power of God, it's wine, and wine makes the heart merry. If you want a good word study in the Old Testament, go through some of the passages on wine and see how appropriate it is as an analogy for both the gospel and the blood of Christ. It makes our heart merry. We find joy and peace and assurance in the gospel. We're like those servants at the wedding at Cana of Galilee. Now, along these lines, at the same time, laboring in word and doctrine, preachers are to be theologians. Sometimes preachers will talk about men that they've defined as theologians as if they are some sort of elite class, maybe even someone that they don't need to take seriously. Well, that's just a theologian. And you even find preachers in today's time who would shun the idea of being theological. You know, we've got to unhitch what we teach and think from some of these scriptural principles. Well, God forbid. God forbid. Every preacher is to be a theologian. Theologians are not certain rare elite preachers. Every one of us should be. We should labor in the word and the doctrine. Laboring in the doctrine. We should know what all of these various biblical metaphors and terms mean. We should be able to rightly divide the word of truth. We should be able to teach it. Now, the first part of that verse, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Obviously, and of course, we should greatly respect laborers who have devoted themselves to the study of God's Word with great discipline. If they're disciplined, if they're devoted, if they're students of the Word, then they deserve our respect. Recently, we've had some terrible calamities in this country, and I did a video on this this past week. What should the Christian response be to some of these acts of violence, such as shootings and stabbings and such? If you study history or study countries and history of countries with crime rates that are high and crime rates that are low, you find all sorts of factors. You find religious influence, but you even find secular nations that don't have religion or Christian religion that have very low crime rates. What you do find is in countries where respect and honor are a part of the culture and the society from youth up, you find lower crime rates. Countries like Japan, for instance. Japan has very low crime, less than a million crimes a year in the entire country of 140-something million people, less than a million crimes a year. We have more violent crimes in the U.S. than that, more violent crimes, let alone white-collar crimes. Why is crime lower in a country like Japan? You might think, well, they don't have any guns. Well, neither does France, and France has high crime. Neither does London. London has high crime. It's respect. It's respect. Now, this ties into some things that we were talking about recently about rebuking not an elder. As Christians, we need to rediscover respect. It doesn't take a whole lot of perusing social media. Get on Facebook or Twitter and look at a hot-button political story, and it, it won't take long at all to come to the conclusion that in this country we simply have no respect for anybody. No respect. We don't respect our elders. We don't respect our leaders. We don't respect our law enforcement. We don't respect our military. We might respect them a little more than other people, but think back to times like Vietnam 
No respect for the sacrifice of the soldiers that were over in Vietnam. We live in a lawless society, and respect is not trained, it's not ingrained in youngsters when they're children. Where do you learn respect? Well, you learn it as a child. Now, there are other ways that you can learn respect. You can learn respect by joining the military and going through boot camp, and you learn that as your arms throb from push-ups and your legs throb from running. Well, you can be taught respect through the school of hard knocks, but respect needs to be taught in the youth. This passage deals with the respect, in part, the respect that is to be given to the gospel ministry. Gospel ministers are to be people that we respect. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. In a disrespectful age, I challenge all of us to be respectful people to those even that disagree with us, to be kind, to speak with polite words, even in moments of disagreement and debate. Yes, sir. No, sir. We should talk with respect. We should be people of respect. As much as that's true, what Paul is actually speaking of here and this is where you need to buckle up for a minute, is the support of the ministry in a financial sense. Now, this is something that we'll look at, and this is something that Flint River Church has attempted before I ever came here. And it's something that I hope that you attempt if and when the Lord sends me somewhere else. Eventually, if the Lord never sends me somewhere else, I will eventually die. And so whenever it is that I'm gone, for one reason or another, however that may work itself out, I hope that this is something that the church will continue to aspire to achieve. Why? So he can labor in word and doctrine. He needs to be counted worthy of double honor if he labors in the word and doctrine. Double honor means extra great respect, great honor. The word honor is a synonym for requit, which even means to pay back. So the language here conveys this. But how do we know that this is what Paul is talking about, double honor? Look at verse 18. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and, there's a very important point regarding scripture here, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Paul appeals to two passages in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let a thing be established. He appeals to two passages when he teaches on the support of the ministry. Now, there are many passages he could go to, and there are other places he teaches that, and when he teaches it in other places, he uses other examples. But Paul appeals to two passages. The first is in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is interesting that he would appeal to the law. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Deuteronomy 25.4, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn, is the actual quote. As he quotes it in 1 Corinthians 9, he words it as I just quoted it to you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 25. I want you to notice, if you have paragraph markers in your Bible, chapter 25 begins a paragraph, verse 4 begins a paragraph, and verse 5 begins a new paragraph. So, in the structure of this passage, all by itself, in the midst of these various commands for how we deal with others, how we settle controversies, is this statement, 
Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. An ox, by the way, not only would plow, but he would also be utilized to harvest. So if you've ever driven through driven through a country rural area, and I know that we have because in Huntsville we have industry and subdivisions and cornfields. Industry, subdivisions, and cornfields. When you drive through the cornfields, there are times of year that the tractor is going through and it's plowing, but there are times that the tractor goes through and it's harvesting. John Gill said that they don't remove it with a flail. In other words, they're not using some sort of a sickle many times. It was faster to take an ox and to let it drag this wooden device behind it that would cut down the corn. And God gives a law in the Old Testament. You will not muzzle the mouth of the ox when he's treading the corn. When an ox treads the corn, then he wasn't to be muzzled. What is a muzzle? I told Lydia this past week I was going to get her a new mouthpiece for her trombone and it was going to be a muzzle. And she said, oh, what's a muzzle? And Rachel had to explain it to her and it was funny and I got a good kick out of it. But a muzzle is what you put over the mouth of an ox, in this case, to stop it from eating. Sometimes people put a muzzle on a dog to stop it from barking or stop it from biting. You put the muzzle on the ox and the ox can't eat the corn. God says, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the corn. Now, why does he do this? Well, it's pragmatic. As he harvests, as he pulls the plow, he continuously eats the corn, and he has strength to continue to do that. In other words, as he goes about the work of the ox, he takes sustenance in from the work, and it provides him with the strength to keep doing the work. Now, when Paul quotes this in the book of 1 Corinthians 9... Paul says a lot about this subject in 1 Corinthians 9, including when he did not utilize this power. Because as gospel ministers, we have to be wise. There are times that even if it's an option, we abstain from this power for the betterment of the church. When Paul went into Corinth, he said to them that he robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do the Corinthian service. He didn't take a dime from the church at Corinth because they were such a vile Gentile culture that newcomers in that city would think that Paul is simply doing what he's doing to be a wealthy man who teaches as an orator or philosopher for a living. And Paul said, I want you to understand that it's more important than that. It's more than that. And so when Paul goes into these Gentile cities, many times he does not receive anything from them. However, there were other churches like the church at Philippi, the Philippians, they they sent support unto him everywhere he went, and he commends them for that. Likewise, concerning the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he told them, he said, what, In what way were you inferior to other churches, even that I was not burdensome unto you? He says that the church at Corinth was inferior in that it did not provide for him when he was the pastor. And that was even by his design. And then he would go on to say, Forgive me this wrong, because the example wasn't set for them. Am I not an apostle, he says in 1 Corinthians 9? Am I not free? Have I not seen Christ our Lord? And he begins to correct those that doubted his apostleship. And then he asks the question, have we not power to eat and drink? Yes. Have we not power to lead about a sister a wife? Yes. 
You have power to lead about a sister or a wife. Should a minister be celibate? No, they have power to lead about a wife. Or I only in Barnabas, have we not power to forbear working? Have we not power to forbear working? Yes, you do. Now, Paul would say, I didn't use this power. But nonetheless, that's a Bible teaching. And we shouldn't overlook it. We shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't explain it away. Let God be true and every man a liar. He begins to reason in this, and we're coming up to the passage that we're sharing with you from Deuteronomy. I don't know, I've got to move quickly. Who goes to warfare at any time in his own charges? When a man joins the military, the military compensates him for his time. Simply that, it's that simple. Who plants a vineyard and eats not of the fruit of the vineyard, of the, eateth not of the fruit thereof? You plant a vineyard, even though you might sell the grapes, you also eat the grapes that you harvest. Who feeds a flock and eats not of the milk of the flock? Paul is establishing that this is a principle throughout all human society. When you engage in a work, you should live of the work that you engage in. It's a very simple principle. My parents paid a man this week a couple of thousand dollars to cut trees out of their yard. And they were happy to do it because the workman is worthy of his reward. He did it. He worked hard. And they were glad to pay him to do that. By the way, when people work hard, you're usually glad to pay them. When people don't work hard, you're not very glad to, to pay them. There have been times that I contracted out things and thought I wish I had not gone with the lowest bidder. But anyway, say are these things as a man? Am I just giving you human examples or saith not the law also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? When God wrote that in the law, did he have oxen in mind? Or was there a greater principle that God had in mind when he gave that law? Does God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that, is, that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. Again, Paul didn't use the power, lest he hinder the gospel of Christ in that wicked Corinthian culture. But he goes on to ask, do you not know that they which minister about the holy things live of the things of the temple? The Levites didn't have fields that they plowed. In fact, when they did, God condemned that. There were times that they did, and God was not happy with them. Levites received no land inheritance. They had no land inheritance in the law. Look at a map. He divides up all these people. What is the inheritance of the Levite? The Lord. He says, the Lord is your inheritance, Levites. Do you not know that they which minister about the holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which waited the altar are partaker with the altar, the bread, the sacrifices. They ate of the things that were offered in the temple. Even so hath the Lord ordained. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should what? Live of the gospel. And again, Paul used none of those things when he was with them. He did in other places. They which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. The elder 
the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. There's an important point regarding Scripture often overlooked in this passage, and I want to leave this as the last thing we consider today. Paul says, For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. In other words, a minister of the gospel should live of that work. If he's the pastor of the church, if able, and if possible, should do what they can do to free his hands so he does not have to have a secular job, that he forbears working. So they're benefited from that, by the way. This isn't so he gets to, like the charlatans and the heretics in today's time, live in the biggest, fanciest house in town and drive a $300,000 car and have a private jet and all that other nonsense. Those guys are heretics. They are heretics. Ask me what I really think. They are heretics. Some of them are hell-bound heretics. If there's any doubt as to what I believe about the subject. But it's so we can study, so what? So you have the benefit of the Word of God preached to you faithfully and a man that you can call on at all times who can jump right in there and be with you when you need him. It's my privilege. Never hesitate. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, in Deuteronomy, when that was given, the principle is when you do something, don't neglect to, and speaking in the secular world, if you hire a man to fix your plumbing, don't neglect to pay the man that fixes your plumbing. That's called stealing. That's theft. That's illegal. As Moses wrote in that passage, if a man does something, then I'm to pay for that. If I have a power bill, I'm to pay the power bill. If I buy a car, I'm to pay for the car. I pay for the services or the products that I have because you don't muzzle the ox. You pay a person for his work. It's just a principle. What if you all went to work and worked for a month and your employer said, I'm not going to pay you this month. We really just, you know, we're a small company. And I just, I just don't think it's in, the, it's in the works this month to give you your paycheck. After you burned the place down, what would you say about that boss? I don't think so. There was once a, an employer that I worked for, and they had sent me a $25 check in lieu of my actual pay, two pay periods in a row. They were a very bad company. I got here in town to the office, and there was a for rent sign where they hadn't paid the rent. And the, I'd been out doing sales work, and the phone had been disconnected for three months, and I didn't know. And so obviously I got no, no clientele out of my awesome sales pitches that I was giving to contractors in the area. But after being ripped around by them a, a few other times, I told them, look, you're not getting back any of your equipment until you give me the money that you owe me. You're not going to rip me off. This is not a game. People go to jail for this. You'd be surprised how quickly they wanted to deal when I was holding on to equipment that was worth ten dollars to $15,000. Oh, we're sorry, we're sorry. We'll get that to you. And, and then all of a sudden a check for the correct amount appears. Anyway, what, what if that happened to you? you know? That's the principle, and it applies to the ministry. The principle is in every area of life, and it applies also to the ministry. When a man comes from a great distance to preach to us, we provide for him that it's a blessing to him because his preaching was a blessing to us. 
And by the way, this is not a matter of legalism or bondage. This is a glorious thing to be able to bless the men of God. Blessed are the sons of peace. What a blessing it is. Now, finally, chapter 10 of Luke. Paul says, as it is written in the what? In 1 Timothy 5. As it is written in the what? Somebody say the word. It starts with an S. As it is written in the Scripture. Somebody said it. As it is written in the Scripture. You might think that he's quoting the Old Testament. Because that's generally when they refer back to the Scriptures, what they referred to. However, when Paul says, as it is written in the Scriptures, the laborer is worthy of his reward. You know he's actually quoting the book of Luke. Chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. What does that mean? That Paul considered Luke's gospel to be what? Scripture. The New Testament is self-authenticating as the Old Testament was. Peter would do this as well when he referred to Paul's writings as Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, Paul would obviously quote the Gospel of Luke because Luke was one of Paul's yoke fellows. Even at the end of 2 Timothy, when everyone else had forsaken Paul, you know what Paul says? Only Luke is with me. Luke was a man that was with Paul even until the very end of his life. It's why we have the book of Acts. You notice it begins to follow the Apostle Paul. Luke recorded that for us. He was with the Apostle Paul. Quoting the book of Luke, as Scripture, Paul quotes Jesus' words to the 70 in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus sends out to preach the gospel. The harvest truly is late, is great. The laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse, nor script, nor shoes. Now, this doesn't mean go barefoot, Winslet kids, okay? Carry neither shoes means you don't carry extra shoes. They, they didn't necessarily go barefoot. And my kids go barefoot. My wife goes barefoot. But these people weren't to take extra. Why? Salute no man, by the way. He's going to explain it in a minute. Whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If the son of peace be there, your peace shall return, shall rest upon it. If not, it shall return to you again. In the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. The laborer is worthy of his hire. Or, synonym, the laborer is worthy of his reward. Preacher, when you go out and somebody says, you can stay in my house, we can have a church here in this first century day where you had house churches. We'll feed you, we'll care for you, we'll provide for you. Jesus says, preacher, you go and you stay there and you take what they give you. And why? Because the laborer is worthy of his hire. Stay there and preach the word from that place. Plant a church in that place and conduct your gospel ministry from that place. Even Jesus taught that principle. We'll look at verse 19 next week. I thank you for being a church that desires to free your pastor's hands, that he may forbear working, that he may study the Word of God, that he may preach the Word of God, that he may travel to preach the Word of God, that my hands are freed, that I have the time to produce radio programs and videos and all sorts of other resources that God's Word sound out from this place and that his children be blessed. It's all for the sake of his children being blessed by the word.